Good morning, friends. Um, it's really a great privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, let me encourage you to have your Bibles open as we go through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Please join with me uh, as we pray uh, to the Lord. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning we can come to your Word, that we hear your Word spoken to us, soften our hearts, open our minds uh, to see Christ and to hear these words, to be hearers of the words, but also doers of your word as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want you to see on the screen, you'll see a slide up there. I want you to meet Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert is a confident, successful, professional basketball player in, in the NBA in the U.S., Last year, in the middle of a growing pandemic in the US, Rudy Gobert decided to show everyone that he was immune to COVID-19. So turning up at the press conference, uh, a maskless, smug, Rudy Gobert deliberately tried to touch, and he was successful, all of the microphones on the table. The next day, he tested positive for COVID-19. He was taken off the team, and the entire NBA was shut down. What you have here is a picture of being self-deceived, thinking you're something, but in reality, you're not. In our passage today, Paul writes to a spiritually self-deceived group of Christians in the city of Corinth. They had an overinflated view of their Christian maturity because of their knowledge, their spiritual gifts, and their freedoms. They became overconfident and behaved in ways like they were immune to sin and temptation, participating in pagan feasts, picking up old patterns of life, all in the name of freedom. But Paul reminds them that these freedoms and gifts are to be used for the gospel. And he warns that all who run the race may not win the prize. In other words, you can think that you're standing strong in the faith, but in reality, you're in danger of falling and being disqualified from serving God and possibly eternal life. It's important to know that he's not saying that Christians can lose their salvation, but we must understand that not everyone who says that they're a Christian and does Christian things necessarily have a genuine saving faith. We need to be warned about being spiritually self-deceived in the Christian life. Are you spiritually self-deceived? Do you think that you're immune to sin and temptations or even some sins and temptations? Do you have an overinflated view of your Christian maturity? Well, hear the warning in chapter 10 of verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So the question for the Corinthian church and for us this morning is this. How do we guard ourselves from being spiritually self-deceived? You can follow along on the outline uh, that's was sent to you. Four points. Well, firstly, we are to learn from the mistakes of the past. Look with me at verse one. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. 
you know, this isn't just any old account, but it's an account of our forefathers. These Israelites believed the same Lord and shared the same faith with us. They experienced God's presence. He was with them wherever they went in the cloud. They experienced God's power as he parted the sea to let them escape the Egyptians. They experienced God's provision as he provided food and drink for them in the wilderness and gave them Moses as their leader. And by experiencing God in all these ways, they were actually experiencing Christ himself. Look at verse four. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Like them, we've experienced God's presence in his Holy Spirit, opening our hearts to taste the love of Jesus. We've experienced God's power rescuing us from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. We've experienced God's provision in spiritual food and drink as we take communion to participate in the gospel and we're baptized into Jesus. But hear this lesson. Just because you started well doesn't mean you'll end well. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. The Israelites, you know, they're standing at a point in history where on one side, they've just experienced the amazing presence, power and provision of God. And they're about to enter onto the other side into a place called the promised land, where they'll continue to experience all of God. But what happens is this, they're on the edge of the promised land. Most of the 1 million of them were rejected by God and died in the desert. Only two survived, Joshua and Caleb. So why did this happen to them? Look at verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. They were spiritually self-deceived. Despite their experiences of God, their hearts were desiring things other than God. But the spotlight isn't just on the Israelites, as you can see in that verse. It's on us. The downfall is an example to keep us, the church, the Corinthians, from setting our hearts on evil things. So what does it look like to have a heart set on evil things? Well, we're to learn from four deadly sins that led the Israelites into being spiritually self-deceived. Firstly, the sin of idolatry. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of, uh, uh, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Here we are reminded of Exodus 32, when the Israelites rejected God and created a golden calf to worship instead. And as a result, 3,000 of them died. It's not corrupted logic or a circumstance that moves a person to replace the worship of the living God for a golden cow made of melted jewelry. This happens because of the evil desires of the heart. Idolatry starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. 
What are the cravings of your heart? You know, I can throw out a few examples to get, get us thinking about things that might be idols to us. But I don't feel comfortable in throwing out some examples because even if I mentioned a million potential idols, it would still be too narrow because after all, anything, absolutely anything can be an idol for us. From a golden calf to the dirt on the ground, we have the ability to put absolutely anything in the place of God in our lives. But I want us to see how deep idolatry reaches into a person. It starts in the evil desires of the heart and seeps into every part of our bodies. That's why idolatry is so commonly connected to sexual immorality, which is the second sin. Look at verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. The connection between idolatry and sexual immorality is strong. That's why here in verse 8, we see the reference to Numbers 25, where the Israelites were seduced by the Moabites, who invited them to sexual immorality and to sacrifice to their gods. And for this act of idolatry, and sexual immorality, 23,000 of the Israelites died. The evil heart desires to connect as close as it can with the idol. So eating, drinking, feasting, indulging in pagan revelry or sexual activity is an expression of that deep fellowship with your idols. You must take the warning here to see that the idols in our hearts are capable of totally consuming us. Just imagine those things that you love more than God. Now imagine those things, those idols, totally consuming you with no limit. What would you end up doing? What would you end up becoming? Keep that picture in your head because it's a realistic picture of what happens if idolatry is allowed to grow. The third sin mentioned here is the sin of testing the Lord. Look at verse 9. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21 where the Israelites traveled with Moses in the wilderness and in their impatience, they spoke against God, and this is what they said. I'll read it out to you. They said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. You might ask, how is this testing the Lord? Seems like a harmless little whinge based on the context. Well, they're speaking against God in a way that's like bringing God into your own little courtroom and saying, God, you've, you've just got to answer for what you've done. The Israelites are so spiritually self-deceived. They're acting like the judges of God, putting God to the test and demanding, okay, God, you've got something to prove to us now, hey? And for this type of testing... God brought venomous snakes upon the Israelites and many of them died. You and I are in danger of testing God 
when we think that he hasn't done enough, when we think God is answerable to us and needs to prove himself to us. But at this point, you might be thinking, I, I wouldn't dare treat or talk to God in that way. And, and maybe you, you don't, maybe you wouldn't. But these sins have been put forward to us as examples of what's going on in the heart. When, when we put God to the test, it's our hearts that have that posture of not trusting God. What areas of your life are you not trusting God? Is there something that you want God to do in order to prove himself to you? What's your posture with God? Does your relationship with God look like a little God answering to a big you? So we come to the fourth sin mentioned, and it's the sin of grumbling. Look at verse 10. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. This is referring to Numbers 14, when the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. Just listen to the grumble. I'll read it out to you. They said, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives, our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? We live in a time when grumbling and complaining is a social norm. Just turn on the radio, look at the news or the TV. So when we hear the grumbles of the Israelites, it might not hit us that hard. But remember that they're saying this to a God who has just shown them and continue to show them his presence, his power and his provision. The heart of their complaint and grumble is God not good enough. These words and actions that come from a heart that is anti-praise, anti-worship, anti-thanksgiving, anti-truth, and ultimately anti-Christ, for they reject God's chosen leader for them, Moses, and opt for another leader. They said, we should just choose another leader and go back to Egypt. Grumbling. It's discontent made audible. It's the heart's contempt escaping through the lips of your mouth. When we grumble, we declare our distrust in God's sovereign rule over our lives. Are we grumblers? Are we guilty of grumbling? Do you look at a situation in your life and think, not good enough, God? Are you so deep in grumbling that you can't even hear or bear the sound of God's truth that he is good? Are you allowing yourself to grumble because you believe God has done wrong to you? If this is you, beware. You know, the world might accept your grumbling and sinfully other Christians might accept your grumbling. But to God, the result of grumbling is death. So as we hear about these four sins, we might be tempted to think that, you know, the first sin of making a golden calf was a really big sin. And then it kind of anticlimax ends with something less spectacular, more familiar, like grumbling. But when we look at all four sins in light of the heart, they're equally as shocking. 
At this point, Paul has taken two mirrors up to the Corinthians. In one mirror, they see their reflection in the blessings and the experiences they have of God, just like the Israelites. And in the other mirror, they see their reflection in the sins of the Israelites. Look at verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. These examples of sin, of spiritual self-deceit, serve as a warning to us, to sober us, to watch our hearts and learn from the negative example of the Israelites. So how can we keep our hearts from falling into spiritual self-deception? Well, the second point, we need to listen for any spiritual self-deception in us. Look at verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The danger put forward here is that we can rest on past victories and successes of our Christian life. Here are some examples of that voice of spiritual self-deception. You might say, I've been part of this church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of my life, so I'll be fine. I have knowledge of the Bible, or I've been to Bible college, so I'll be fine. I've been baptized, so I'll, I'll be fine. Paul is saying here in verse 12, beware. That type of overconfidence is a, uh, of, in the past is a sign of spiritual self-deception. You are just as prone to sin and temptation as the Israelites. You are just as prone to sin and temptation as the Christians who are more mature than you and the Christians who are less mature than you. There is no such thing as a passive Christian or a graduated Christian we all need to be careful that we don't fall because we're not immune to sin and temptation. We're all called to be careful, watchful, on guard for the voice of spiritual self-deception in our hearts. But here we come to the climax of this passage because we are told that we don't face these temptations alone. But in the midst of temptation, we are invited to look at the faithfulness of God. The warnings of the past 12 verses are greatly balanced by this great promise. Look at verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, keep this verse open in front of you as I unpack it, because there are a lot of gems in here. In verse 13, we see that when we are tempted, we must hold on to the truths about God's faithfulness. Although we feel that temptations have seized or captured us, there is a way out. Just think about our temptations to sin. You know what it feels like. I know what it feels like. It comes on like an aggressive kidnapping, like we're seized. That's the word that's used. But there is a way out, a way out. Although we may feel alone in our temptations, 
we're reminded that they're not unique, but common to man. We must speak the truth against the big lie that our temptations are unique. No one knows what it's like to be me. That's simply not true. All temptations we face are common to man. Although we may feel powerless in our temptations, we're reminded that God is faithful because he's sovereign. Look at those words in that passage. Let, beyond. Beautiful words that tell us that God sets limits. Although you may feel hopeless in your temptations, we are reminded that God provides a way to stand up under it or endure. We might not have the temptation go away, but the promise is that God will give you a way to endure it. We can summarize all these truths together in one sentence. In the midst of our temptations, God is faithful. But where has God been most faithful to you? He has been most faithful to us on the cross. When we look at the cross, we see one ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness to us. That in the midst of our temptations, because when we were already in sin, Christ died for us. So if he's already done the greater thing, then surely he'll do the lesser thing in the situation of the temptations of your life. Looking at God's faithfulness is the complete opposite of what the Israelites did in the four sinful accounts we just read. Testing God, grumbling, abandoning God for a golden calf and committing sexual immorality to satisfy cravings of the evil heart are the exact opposite to looking to God's faithfulness. In fact, committing those sins actually makes complete sense if God is not faithful, but he is faithful. So in our temptations, don't look away from the cross. See that through Jesus' blood, we are healed. Through his perfect life, we can share in his resurrection and he'll finally bring us to the end. So what does it look like to live with God's faithfulness as the prime focus of your life? Well, it means preaching to ourselves this gospel of the cross every day because we're prone to forget God's faithfulness to us. If the Israelites could forget God and make a golden cow not long after they experienced the miracles of God, then we're in danger of forgetting the Lord. It means receiving others who help you hold on to the gospel or point you to the gospel. It means putting yourself in places where you will constantly be reminded about God's faithfulness. And that's why we have church. That's why this time together is so valuable. That's why we have each other. Holding on to anything apart from the faithfulness of God on the cross is idolatry. And that's why Paul in verse 14 summarizes the entire issue in one sentence. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idols and look to the faithfulness of God in the cross. That's the way to keep our hearts from being spiritually self-deceived. It's God's faithfulness that has brought you to this point and it's faithfulness that will get you to the end prize. I just love that hymn, Amazing Grace, that line, "'Twas grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home.'" 
So who's the main character in the story of your Christian life? Is it Christ and his faithfulness? Or someone or something else? What's the main theme of your Christian walk? Is it the faithfulness of God or someone else? Anything less than that, anything less than Christ is a sign of spiritual self-deceit. So we've seen in the first 14 verses of the passage, Paul has shown the church the dangers of spiritual self-deceit and how to combat it. So now in verses 15 to 22, he tackles specific dilemmas faced by the Corinthian church as they participated in things outside the church that may have very deep spiritual dangers. Some of the Corinthians expressed their Christian freedoms by eating food in pagan temples, even to the point of participating in pagan rituals. So Paul wants the Corinthians to consider all the things that they participate in. And he warns them to leave no space for participation with demons. You know, there's so much that we can participate in, even during COVID. We can join various clubs. We can travel after COVID. We can meet. We can hang out with anyone we like. There's just a lot of freedom. But we shouldn't be ignorant of the fact that some things that we could participate in might seem harmless on the surface, but they might have deeper meanings and connections to demons. Just think about the things we do at church. We're not just a club performing rituals for our own well-being or to keep traditions alive or because it's the right thing to do or a good thing to do. But the things happening in the church always carry a deeper meaning and connection. Look at verse 16 to 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we partake of the one loaf. When we partake in communion, the bread and the wine, they it might be really tiny, but the participation we have with Christ is enormous. We are participating with the blood and the body of Christ. So as Christians, we must consider that although many activities or tables will be open to us, we cannot be self-deceived to think that we can participate on everything that's on offer. For the Corinthians, it was the offer to eat at a pagan temple. But what about us? What do we need to consider what about if our children are invited to participate in a Halloween party? Or we are asked to be involved in a ceremony at a Roman Catholic church for a friend. Or we're invited to come to a mosque or a Hindu temple. Here's an Aussie one. Maybe we're invited to be part of the Melbourne Cup and a gambling event. Or a participation at an Asian funeral. For some of these examples, it will be a clear yes or no. And sometimes it will be gray. So in order to keep ourselves from being spiritually self-deceived, we must always take the time to question our participation and look below the surface before making a decision. And Paul gives us and the church a model of this way of thinking. Look at verse 18 to 20. 
Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices to participate in the altar. Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So we know that in light of God's power and truth, these pagan activities are worth absolutely nothing. But don't be unaware that participation might connect you to demons. If we think back to the warnings of verse 6 and 10, it was the heart that was the issue, wasn't it? So although people may be sacrificing to nothingness, their hearts are inclined to real evil. The key thing here is to remember that you and I, who we are, what table we eat from, through the cross, Christ has bought you a table, a seat at the table of God. You're not just a spectator to God's faithfulness, but full participants. So as full participants at the table of God, we need to consider why we'd want to be eating anywhere else. Now look at verse 21 to 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So we come to the end of this passage with a rhetorical and I would say somewhat sarcastic question by Paul. Are we stronger than the Lord? I want you to see and, and don't miss the power in this question. Ask yourself this morning, am I stronger than the Lord? Well, obviously, obviously, of course, we're not stronger than the Lord. Silly question, isn't it? But the worrying thing is when you are spiritually self-deceived, your actions answer this question with a, Yes, I am stronger than the Lord. Friends, we need to wake up from any spiritual self-deceit that we may have. And let me suggest that you and I this week, that we spend some quiet moments asking that question. Am I stronger than the Lord? And as we, as we reflect deeply on this question, Let's examine every area of our lives. Look and listen for any spiritual self-deceit. In that reflection, we might see that maybe the way we have made some of our decisions reflect that we think we're stronger than the Lord. Or the exercise of our Christian freedoms reflect that we think we're stronger than the Lord. Or maybe it's our prayerlessness that reflects that we think we are stronger than the Lord. So in all of this, as we uncover our own spiritual self-deception at times, let's move forward to lives that clearly display the faithfulness of God in Christ for everyone to see. Later in the service, we'll sing the hymn, Come Thou Fount. And I want us to pay particular attention to the last verse. And I'll use that last verse as our prayer as we close uh, today. So please bow with me as we pray. 
Lord, oh to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness as a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In Jesus' name, amen.